Is it possible that certain places offer a portal into the past where one might observe centuries-old events replaying themselves out again and again, complete with long-ago demolished physical landmarks? If so, then Night and Gorges on the Isle of Wight is clearly one such place. This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to the Other Realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and returned to tell the tale. These are their stories. Undoubtedly, one of the most beautiful houses on the Isle of Wight was the ivy-covered, grey-stone, gothic-style manor house near the village of Newchurch, known as Knighton Gorges. With parts of the house dating back to the 11th century, Knighton Gorges played a highly important role in the island's history. The name Knighton comes from the Celtic word Kythen, which means the place of a fight, a name highly appropriate for an estate whose owners throughout its history were often engaged in bloody conflicts. As early as the 14th century, ghostly moans and wailing were said to emanate from the room in which Sir Theobald Russell died from wounds sustained while defending the island from French invaders. When, in the 16th century, a new owner remodeled parts of the manor in the course of adding new additions to the house, screams and the rattling of chains filled the air, while the furnishings of the haunted room flew about with such frequency that it became necessary to call a priest to conduct a not altogether successful exorcism. In the 18th century, Night and Gorges became both the scene of a suicide and the focus of a notorious sexual scandal. Finally, in the early 19th century, the owner had the great manor house demolished in order to eliminate its costly maintenance and lessen his tax load. But that would not be the last of Night and Gorges. Many years later, a young traveler sought shelter at a house in Newchurch on a cold winter's night. Over a much-appreciated dinner, he complained of how earlier that evening he had almost been run down by a carriage pulled by two horses racing up a drive leading to a grand house. Rightly upset by this, he had made his way to the house seeking recompense for this indignity. He heard music coming from inside the house, but no one heeded his insistent knocking on the door. He peered into a window, and through a small opening between the curtains, he could see what appeared to be a costume party, with all of the guests attired in Georgian dress taking place in the drawing room. He began rapping on the window, but as nothing he did succeeded in gaining the party-goer's attention, he finally gave up 
and made his way to New Church. The young man's story seemed quite strange to his hosts, as they were unaware of any such house existing anywhere in the vicinity. When he showed them the house's location on a map, they were stunned, for he had pointed to the exact site of the long-ago demolished Night and Gorges. Over the years, others reported the occasional reappearance of the Phantom Manor, as well as hearing music emanating from the house site. It was not, however, until the 1916 publication of some rather extraordinary experiences, which had occurred only a few years earlier, that outsiders became aware of the strange phenomena which so often occurred on the grounds of the Knight and Gorges estate. Miss Ethel C. Hargrove, a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, reported that in 1913, on a cold, still New Year's Eve, she, her sister, and three local villagers had walked a mile from Newchurch to the grounds of the former Knight and Gorges Manor a little before midnight, and were rewarded for braving the cold when at ten minutes to twelve they experienced what she described as the marvelous oral manifestation of a lady singing soprano. This was followed by a duet with a baritone and part songs accompanied by a spinet or harpsichord. Lastly, she records, came some very dainty and refined minuet airs. A few minutes before midnight, a flood of melody arose from the site of the former mansion. It was varied in character. Dance music played on a harpsichord, Georgian minuet airs, slow and stately, then a duet between tenor and soprano voices. At twelve, the party seemed to break up. A pistol or gun was fired. Dogs bayed, and the sound of carriage wheels was heard. One summer evening later that year, she continued, I was walking on the road that passes the old gatepost between the hours of seven and eight, earnestly engrossed in conversation with a friend. My attention was suddenly arrested by a very loud noise, apparently made by children playing with wire railings. We could not ascertain the cause, but as there were several schoolboys about, we passed on and thought no more of the circumstance. It would never have occurred to me to give the matter another thought, but for this coincidence. A few days later, on Monday, 6th July, I was sitting on the fallen trunks shortly before 8 p.m. The thought of hearing again the mysterious music was strong within me, but I was destined to hear music of a different kind. Again it delighted my ears, but this time it was the voices of a church choir. I listened with great joy till I was disturbed by conflicting elements. The selfsame noise I had attributed to the schoolboys knocking the wire railings. This time it was simply deafening, children playing again, I reasoned, but it had in it an affinity to the clashing of swords. Do be quiet, I shouted, for the sacred music was hardly distinguishable in such a din. Finding my remonstrance had no effect, 
I rose to my feet and approached the spot from which the tumult proceeded, the corner of the walled garden. When I arrived there it ceased, but neither boys nor railings could be seen. Surely in days of yore, she concluded, a mortal conflict must have taken place there, and even now the forces of good and evil appear to war against each other. Two years later, on New Year's Eve, 1915, she wrote, I determined to revisit Knighton with a friend who had never been there before. We walked from New Church with a view of arriving in good time for any manifestations. While walking, I heard the sounds of distinct music intermingled with the bleeding of the sheep, but I did not at any time make any remark on the subject. The night was fine and starlit, and the wind played gently through the bare branches of the trees. There were no lights in the cottages, and even at 9 p.m. the world seemed asleep. As we approached Knighton, lights were reflected from behind our shoulders, so vivid that we could plainly see our own shadows in dark relief, and I had the sensation that people were following us. But whenever I looked behind, the dim gloom was unbroken except for the twinkling of the stars, and there was not a soul in sight. We settled ourselves at the old gates to await the trend of events, but a vague feeling of discomfort that I was sitting in someone's way obsessed me, so we decided to move to another gate across the road, leading into a broad expanse of field, merging into the long range of downs. The field was studded with lights, apparently reflected from the windows of a house, and my friend had the strong impression that we were there just in time to witness the advent of some late arrivals. She could hear the deep baying of house-dogs and the shriller yap of a King Charles or Blenheim Spaniel. As the door opened to admit the guests, my friend plainly saw a square white house with ivy covering the lower part, leaded diamond panes to the windows, and heard all the sounds of welcoming and greeting, a confused murmur of voices. Next, a flute and violin could be distinctly heard. Then came silence, and a man's form could plainly be seen standing near a bow window with a tall stem glass with a flat bowl raised as if for a toast. He was dressed in 18th century costume, black clothes, frilled shirt, white silk stockings, his dark hair plainly tied back with a black ribbon. There was evidently cheering and clapping of hands, then a burst of music. This time the drum could be plainly distinguished. From then until 11.40 p.m., there were no sounds except an occasional burst of music and fainter moving lights spread over a large area. And reflected on the opposite side of the road, one could plainly see the posts and even the twigs of the bare hawthorns in the hedges. I walked up and down the road a little way to keep warm, and when I rejoined my friend, twice I turned towards the wrong opening, misled by the powerful light. At twenty to twelve, 
when we were standing in the road opposite the phantom house, a full tenor voice lustily gave forth, God rest you, merry gentlemen, and the whole party joined in the chorus. The lights of the house were soon so dim that one could see nothing, though curiously enough, the reflections on the far side remained as vivid. We heard nothing more except two weird sounds which my friend thought the hoot of a motor. I took them to be the call for a belated carriage. Evidently the revels were at an end, and we lost no time in taking our departure, for we had a lonely walk of five miles across country to Sandown. It was worth it, we declared, although we did not reach our destination until after 2 a.m. In the years since, a number of people have seen the phantom house, heard ghostly music, seen or heard the sound of a horse-drawn carriage thundering down the drive, and seen such ghostly figures near the Knight and Gorge's gatepost as a lady in an ornate mauve ball gown, children without faces in dirty pinafores, a faceless woman in a long white hooded garment, a gray man in old-fashioned clothes, and a man wearing a cape and top hat. As a result, a highly popular annual tradition has developed of ghost enthusiasts gathering at the gateposts on New Year's Eve in the hope of experiencing the phenomena themselves. Stranger still, motorists stopping by the gateposts or merely driving by have often experienced the total loss of the car's electrical power or their engine failing completely. In the days before cell phones, the owners of a nearby farmhouse had so many motorists knocking on their door asking to use their phone to call for a tow truck that they had a payphone installed on their porch. And then there is the mystery of the gatepost lions. For decades, Ted Perry, a tour bus driver, had stopped at the gatepost to tell his passengers the history of Night and Gorges. And for decades, he had commented that the gatepost, topped with heraldic lions, were now all that remained of the once grand estate. Then, one day, in 1972, Upon making his regular stop at the gatepost, he was stunned to see that the stone lions were no longer there. Concerned that they might have been stolen, he fired off a letter to the local newspaper asking if anyone knew what had become of them. When it was pointed out to him that there never had been stone lions or anything similar to lions topping the pillars, a controversy ensued which was to rage for years. Although the earliest known photograph of the pillars, published in 1916, clearly shows the pillars without lions or a stone animal of any kind, numerous locals flocked to Perry's defense, reporting that they also had in recent times seen lions or griffins or some such stone carvings atop the pillars. In one case, a woman testified to clearly seeing a stone lion atop one of the pillars, only to have it begin to shimmer and vanish.
Another local reported having seen the stone lions when visiting the site at night, but never during daylight hours. Gay Baldwin, a friend of mine who conducts ghost tours on the Isle of Wight and who has written eight books on the subject, decided to investigate and discovered that at one time in the distant past, the gateposts were called the dog pillars because well over a century ago there had indeed been either stone dogs or lions which looked like dogs perched atop the pillars. But, she was told, an early owner of the property had taken them away to decorate another of his estates. Gay later compared the remaining part of the pillar tops with a diamond-shaped board hanging in the local church displaying the coat of arms of a member of one of the families which had once owned Knighton Gorges, and found that the remaining part of the stone carving atop the pillar matches exactly the wreath and coronet above the helmet surmounting the family's coat of arms a helmet upon which rose the family crest. A dog. That being the case, it seems clear that what remains today atop the pillars is the lower half of a family crest, a crest which at one time would have been topped by a sculpture of a dog, a sculpture which could from a distance easily be mistaken for an heraldic lion. And so the mystery of Night and Gorges continues. Is Night and Gorges a place in which both the present and the past exist simultaneously? Are there supernatural forces at work which science cannot explain? I have no answers. I know only that each of the accounts I have just recalled are absolutely true. This is Mark Lyon, inviting you to join me on the first day of every month as we explore more true tales from the Other Realm. The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei, and by Wind Whistle Press, publishers of Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and 
San Francisco Ghost by Mark Lyon.